Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we are always thankful that we have the opportunity to gather together and, and just dig into your word. And so my prayer now is um, for those who are here this morning who really don't want to be here, for those who were dragged here, for those who were invited, that whoever, Lord, that your spirit would fill them in a way that what they hear this morning will have a positive impact on their life. In your name we pray, amen. So I sometimes get asked, um, why, do you, why do you make that prayer? Of course everybody that comes to church wants to be here. And um, the, the, the reality is, is that I have a feeling that there's at least one of you who is sitting here this morning who doesn't want to be here. And, and it's not because you don't like church or you don't like the people or you, know, you don't like me, but maybe it's just one of those days where You'd rather be somewhere else. Um, you know, this may be hard to believe, but before I was a pastor, there was times where I didn't want to go to church. You know, granted, I was in high school, <laughs> and um, all of my friends wanted to go, so I would go because of that. But I understand that there are some times where you would rather be somewhere else. But I'll also say that I'm glad that you are here. And I believe that you're here because God has a special word for you this morning. And so, if in doubt, we say, always come to church. <laughs> so, we are going through our sermon series on the last week of Jesus' life. So, Easter is coming up, Resurrection Sunday, whatever you like to call it. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. And, and what we're doing here through our sermon series is looking at the last week of Jesus. Because as we said before, if you only had one week to live, there are some things you would want to do. And, and if you had just one week left to live you would do the most important things probably. And so our belief and my belief is that in the last week of Jesus's life, he had some really important teachings that he wanted to teach his followers. Ultimately, he would want, wanted to teach us today. Now, Tuesday is the day we're looking at this morning. Now, on Tuesday, if any of you have read through the, through the book of Mark, we're looking at the book of Mark, Tuesday has like 10 different things that Jesus talked about. He talks about faith that moves mountains. He talks about forgiveness. He talks about baptism. He shares a parable about wicked tenants and a vineyard. He talks about himself as the cornerstone of the Christian faith. He talks about giving taxes to Caesar and giving to God what is God. He talks about how there won't be marriage in heaven, which really wasn't about marriage at all anyway. He talks about the greatest commandment, love God, and the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's always a great sermon to preach, but I just preached it like four weeks ago, so... I figured you guys wouldn't, um, you would really ask, what do I do with my time if he recycles sermons that close, <laughs> that close by? Uh, can I just tell, can I side note? There's always a temptation for preachers to take what they preached in their previous church to preach it in the new church. Can I just say that for the next time you guys have another pastor? <laughs> Give them a hard time. Be like, how many times have you recycled that sermon? I don't do that, though. I, I don't think I do. Okay. Um, Jesus also talks about the destruction of the temple, of the, of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. He talks about the second coming or his return, and he talks about the widow's offering. Now, out of all of those stories, how do I decide which one we get to choose? So there's a couple of ways I do that. First of all, um, in prayer, and I believe the Holy Spirit helps to guide us as, as preachers as we try to come up with what we're going to be preaching. I believe that if if the preacher is doing the job well of submitting to God, God will always show him. 
Um, and then the second part is, as, as good Seventh-day Adventists, we always like an end-time sermon, right? So, <laughs> so this morning, we're going to be talking about a little bit about the second coming of Jesus and how the story of the widow who gives all that she has to the temple, how those go so well together in teaching us about how to wait well um, for when Jesus returns. Now, it's, you know, I make a joke about how, as, as good Seventh-day Adventists, we always like these good end-time sermons but it's not just Seventh-day Adventist. I mean, if you, if you think about it, if you, if you go to the movies at any rate throughout the year, well, there's so many movies about how the end will come, right? And, and it may not be a biblical way, but people are fascinated with end times. People are fascinated with what Judgment Day is going to look like. And, 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 and sadly, I feel like Christians and even Seventh-day Adventists have allowed Hollywood and the over-sensationalization of end times and conspiracy theorists to tell us what the end will look like. And this morning, I'm here for us to talk just a little bit about what does Jesus actually say about what the end will look like. So the first thing that I want to kind of address is that for all of the Bible writers and all the theologians, they would say that this period of end time begins at the resurrection of Jesus. So for the Bible writers, their worldview is that they start, as soon as they started to wait for the return of Jesus, there is this period that we call, I don't know if we call it right or wrong, but end times. And, and I don't really like using that word because it has this kind of sense of scariness and persecution and all this weird stuff. Because the truth is, and, and what the Bible teaches, is that for those who have surrendered and put their trust in God, God ultimately rescues you. And so instead of saying end times, I, also, I often refer to it as the renewal of all things. Because even when we look in the, in the book of Revelation, it's all pointing towards God eradicating this world of pain and suffering. It's all about God coming to end evil and to establish this new world and recreate not only our bodies, but also recreate this entire earth. You see, we often talk about the about going to heaven with God. And, and the Bible actually says very little about that. There, there is this, there's one verse in the book of Revelation that says that we'll spend a thousand years in heaven, but then when Jesus returns, he establishes this earth as the new earth, and God makes this new earth everything new and pure and good. And what the Bible teaches us is that you will actually spend eternity here on earth. Now, what we can expect, I have no idea, but I can only imagine that what God has in store for us is going to be better than the best dreams and our wildest imagination. And so my question, though, as I was reading through this text and as I was praying through this, is that we often talk about, well, we can't wait for Jesus to come back. And it's like we're trying to rush through the life that God has given us. You see, God didn't make a mistake when you were created. Now, granted, does God like how things are going on this earth? Probably not. But why are we trying to rush and escape from this place that God has created us to be in? That's my question. Now, I know for some of you, you'll say, well, things are so bad. Things have never been this bad. And so we just know that the end is close because things are just so bad, which is always a bad way to start an argument for the return of Jesus. But I have, I have the, this is these thoughts that came to my mind as I was preparing this, and, and I get it, like things are pretty bad, right? We look at our politics, we look at wars, we look at natural disasters, and things are pretty bad. But do you remember the story when Adam and Eve were in paradise, and then they got kicked out of paradise? 
Do you think things were bad for them? Probably. They could no longer have access to God the way they had it before. And then the very next story in Scripture is that Adam and Eve have two sons, and one of the sons kills their other son. Do you think things were pretty bad? Like, I don't know what the statistics would be, but the, the, the murder rate would be pretty high, right? Like, if, if it was just four people and one of them kills another, things were pretty bad. And I think we often forget that things Bad. Violence was so bad and bloodshed was so rampant that God felt the need to destroy everything on earth except for Noah, his family, and some animals. Things were pretty bad. If we look at the scriptures, there is times and pictures of how life is bad and things are bad. But these people were never rushing towards the next thing. They just understood that sometimes in life, things are going to be challenging and things are going to be hard and the world around us looks like it's going to fall apart. But even in the midst of all of that, there's no need to rush to the end. First and foremost, because we have no control over that. Okay, so if, you know, one of the things that we often teach is there are some things you have control over and some things you have absolutely no control over. And we have no control over when Jesus decides to come and renew all things. But what we do have a choice and what you do and can control is how you will choose to live your life until Jesus returns. Because your life is a gift. The breath of life has been given to you by God. And so right from the start, life is a gift. There's this ancient um, teaching that the Hebrew rabbis would say is that every breath you take is like saying the name of God. The, the Hebrew letters for, the, for God were Yahweh, so it's the Yod, Het, Vav, Het. And what the rabbis would say is that those deep guttural sounds is like the sound of breathing. And if God has given you the breath of life with every breath that you take, you are actually giving voice to the name of God. Now, would God make a mistake by creating you? No. Maybe, instead of rushing through this, maybe we go and be about our Father's business in this world. Now, if you think this is just David Ostagera's version of how things should be, I guarantee you it's not. And to show you, I want to invite you uh, to open up your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark is in the New Testament. <laughs> Where's Anne and Denai? I've been doing Bible study with Anne and Denai. And um, so, you know, when, whenever I do Bible studies with people and I'm not sure how much Bible they know, I'll say, like, okay, so we're going to go to the book of Mark. And then I'll say, it's in the New Testament, just to kind of give them an idea. And they were laughing at me. Um, I think Anne was laughing at me. She says, we already know where the books of the Bible are. You don't have to tell us. <laughs> like, I know, but some people might not. Mark chapter 11, um, we don't have a PowerPoint. I felt like for this sermon series, it would be nice for us to just pull out those red Bibles in front of you if, you, if you're able to read them. And um, we're looking at the New International Version. So Mark chapter, I said 11, but it's actually chapter 12. Put your finger there and just hold for a second. So the question I ask is, why the rush for the end? And some of you are like, well, that's easy, Pastor, because we want to have a relationship with Jesus. We want to have a face-to-face -face relationship with God. 
And that sounds like the right answer. But our faith and the Bible teaches us that we can have a relationship with Christ today. There's tons of Bible verses. So I thought about this and I said, well, what, what is it that defines a relationship? And so I came up with three words, and it's not, an, it's not all the words that, that make up a relationship, but here's one of the ones that we, I think, typically associate with a relationship with Jesus. Peace. We say, we want Jesus to come back because then there will be peace all around. And I said, that's great. That's true. Right? The Bible teaches there will be no more pain and no more suffering when Jesus returns. But if peace is what we're looking for, if, if, and I'm not asking you to turn to your Bibles, but John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. And there's actually a definite article in front of the second word, peace. So it's like God is, and Jesus is saying, my, the peace, the one peace that, that upon which all other peace is based on, the real peace, the everlasting peace, that peace that only God can give, I give to you. So if peace is what you're looking for, peace you can have today. The other word we think about with relationships is the word love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. 1 John, 1 John says this, whoever does not love God does not know God because love. 1 John 4 verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. So if we're waiting for Jesus to come back because we want to experience this love relationship with God, you can have it today. You don't have to wait till then. Another word that we talk about and we associate with, with God is security or safety, right? A relationship with Jesus, when he finally comes back, we will always be safe, we will always be secure John 17, verse 15 says this, Jesus prays for his disciples. He says, and he says, this is what Jesus' prayer is to God. I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There's security right there. Psalm 91, verse 14, it says, those who love me, this is God speaking, I will deliver. I will perfect those, protect those, I'm sorry, who know my name. When they call I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble, and I will rescue them. So if you are waiting for Jesus to return because you want to have a peaceful relationship or a love relationship or security, the good news and the news that I've given my life to preach is that you can have all of that today. Now, some of you are saying, well, yeah, yeah, pastor, okay. Okay, preacher, but... I can't see Jesus. I can't see God. We just read that if we love one another, God manifests himself in the midst of how well you love other people. Not only that, if a physical presence was the only way to have a relationship with someone, then everyone on eHarmony that has met each other long distance doesn't really have a relationship. How many of you have ever been in a long-distance relationship? Is that still a relationship? If you have a long-distance relationship, does that mean that you can go and date other people? I hope the answer is no. <laughs> no. See, a relationship isn't determined just by the geographical proximity of the people in a relationship. A relationship goes far beyond just being in the presence of the person. 
So if your faith doesn't make you feel connected to God, even now, then you need a new faith. If you don't feel safe and secure in the promises of God, then it is time for you to redefine your faith. And if your faith is just about escaping this world to go to another world, then you need to take a hard look at your faith. Because faith requires belief even in knowing the certainty of something you cannot see. We all love that verse right now. Faith is being certain of what we cannot see. Faith requires us to step outside of the conventional mode of understanding all reality. Faith is about trusting in the God that we know is there, even though we can't always see God. Now, I hope I'm not offending anyone by this, but you see, what's truly important to me is not just that we understand what's going to happen when the end comes or all of our doctrinal beliefs, but what's most important to me and what's primary, what I've given my life to, is that you would have a relationship with the living God. Because if you have a relationship that trusts and feels secure in this God, nothing else will matter. It won't matter that our world looks like it's about to end. Because if you keep your eyes on God, it won't matter what's happening down here. What do we see in movies, right? Um, I was just watching something the other day. I don't even remember what it was. But there was these people. It was a movie, so it was fake. But they had a cross between one building to another, but they had a like cross and it was really high. And what's the one thing that people always say? Don't look down. They'll say, keep looking at me and keep walking forward. And I think that's an ample metaphor for how we live our life, that we should always keep our eyes connected to God because I believe that God is point and will help us through all of this. So, Let's go to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. And here's what Jesus says. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only who? The Father. Be on guard and be alert. You do not know when that time will come. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each, each with his assigned tasks and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So when Jesus is talking... And this is the earliest recorded words that we have of Jesus talking about the end, about when he will come. What does Jesus say? He gives a metaphor of a master who leaves his house, he goes on a trip, and he tells his servants, hey, stick to the jobs that you have. Stick to the things that I have assigned for you and do those until I come back. Now, I have a quick story to illustrate this. Um, when I first became a pastor, um, I moved into the Imperial Valley, and there was a fam and I went in the summer, and there was a family who usually takes vacation throughout the whole summer. And so they said, hey, so that you can save some money, why don't you come and house it for us, right? 
All you have to do is mow our lawn and make sure that the pool has all the right levels. I'm leaving the wrong guy to do that, okay? I don't. <laughs> Two days after, I, after they came back, the water heater like broke and that was weird, yeah. So I didn't do it though, I promise. So it's a good deal, right? Hey, just all you have to do is mow the lawn and make sure the pool is taken care of, except that it was 127 degrees when, in the summertime in El Centro. So anyway, that's just a side note. But here's what happened. I'm a pretty clean guy, right? I was raised in a house where there was never trash and trash cans, okay? That's, that's how clean my mom raised us to be. So as you get older, you're not as clean as, you know, because your mom's not there to tell you to take out the trash. But here's what happened. The, the week before this family came back, I made sure that I cleaned the house as clean as possible. I'm talking Clorox and 409 and Windex, and I was like, you know, um, fabuloso. Some of you don't even know what that is, but for the, I mean, I cleaned this house like if my mom was going to come and use a white glove, right? Because that's, that's what I did growing up. I was a janitor. I didn't do it the whole time. I just did it really, really well the week before they came. Not only that, the day before they came, I did another like surface cleaning. I didn't cook any food because I didn't want to get it. I mean, it was like as clean as it could get. You see, sometimes we do that with our faith. Well, if we know Jesus is coming, then I'm going to be really good. And I think God knows that. I think God knows that if he says, hey, okay, guys, I'll, I'll level with you. I'm going to come in the year 2020. But I'm not going to tell you when, just know that it's going to be sometime in the year 2020. Well, that gives us some time. Because guess what? We can repent, you know, on New Year's Eve 2019. I'm not saying any of you would, all right? But I'm saying some people might think they can. So you see, if, if God's like, well, this is, where I'm, this is when I'm coming, well, then we're going to ramp up all of our efforts to be good witnesses of God when we get closer to there. Because the time is running out. But you see, what Jesus says is, no, you don't know. What you do know and what you can control isn't when I return, but what you can control is how you live your life. And if we use the metaphor of the house and the servants, let's say Jesus is the master and he goes to heaven to be with God. The earth is the house and we are the servants. The Bible says that the whole earth is the Lord's. So we could think of the whole earth as the temple of God and we are the servants in the house of God. And all you can be in control of is how you will choose to live your life while you wait. And what Jesus says is to do your work. Be about your father's work. Now, if, let's use my analogy. If I was cleaning the house on a weekly basis and the, and the couple that I was house-sitting for decided to come home a little early, there would be no problem because the house was pretty clean, Right? So I think that what Jesus is telling us is always be faithful and committed to God. Surrender your life so that God can live through you while, the, while it feels like the earth is falling away and society is in an uproar. That's okay because all you can be in control of is how you are going to treat one another. How are you going to be a parent? How are you going to relate to your wife or your husband? Are you going to be generous with the money that God has given you? Are you going to be generous with the time that you have? Are you going to be a blessing? The story we often go back to in the book of Genesis is Abraham. And what does God say to Abraham? He says, you must be a blessing 
to all people. That is the work that we are called to do. Now, let's look at one final story. If you go back to Mark chapter 12, I said we're going to look at a story about a woman, a widow who gives. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Some translations say that it was worth a penny. Calling his disciples, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. They gave out of their abundance or wealth, but she gave out of her poverty in everything, all that she had to live off of. If you're our guest, this is not a sermon about how you should give all your money to the church. Now, on the one hand, this is a story about a woman who gives to God, right? Because the temple was a representation of who God was for people. This is where they met God. And so this widow, this poor widow, was giving all that she had. What's not written in the story is that if a widow was giving all that she had, it probably meant that she didn't have family. So in the first century, when, when the Bible writers talk about taking care of the widows, they, they were talking about the widows that had absolutely no one, right? Because Paul talks about how widows that have families, the families will take care of them. But the church has to be concerned with the ones that don't have anyone. So Jesus is using the metaphor of the widow that has no family, no kid, no sister, no one to rely on. So she has very little. She has nothing. And out of the, the little that she has, she gives it all to God. So on the one hand, people would say, you see, no matter how much you can give, give to the Lord, right? And, and this could be a sermon about giving. But I think that what this story really is trying to teach you today and teach me today, is that she chose to trust God with everything she had. If two nickels is all you have, that's still more than no nickels, right? If $20 is more than you have, is all that you have, that's way more than no dollars. And so this widow had no one to rely on, had no one to help her, had no real source of income probably, and she chooses to give it all. She chooses to put her entire life in the hands of God. She chooses to trust God with everything. And so you're asking, what does this story have to do with the coming of Jesus? It has everything to do with it. Because the Bible tells us that we must put our entire trust into the hands of God. You talk about how do we navigate these times? You put your trust in God. This is no time for us to just be pointing to the moon and the stars. Remember when Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, the disciples are looking up and they say, is this now the time that you are coming to establish your kingdom? And, and, Jesus, and the angel says, why are you looking into the stars? It was a play on words. Like, why are you looking up there when you're called to live down here? You're here for a reason. We are here to proclaim the name of Jesus everywhere we go. All that you really have control over is will you lift Jesus up? Will you be a follower of Jesus who surrenders all that you have and trust that God will take care of you? If we believe that God is a good God, then God will take care of us. 
It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. Bad things are always happening. That's, they're always happening. That's why it's hard for people to have faith. Bad things will always happen, but this story reminds us that you can have peace and love and security. All trust in God. I have one, one final. Um, I, can I just share one last story? Um, I was talking to my dad maybe six months ago or so, and, um, you know, my dad always tells me how to be a pastor. Um, that's what parents do. Uh, I love it when he tells me stuff, and my mom's like, how do you know? You're not a pastor. <laughs> love it. He's always giving me advice. He's always telling me, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. This is how you should say this. And I'm always like, yeah, Dad, thanks. Okay, I got, I got it, Dad. <laughs> but there was one story that he shared with me. So most of you know by now, you know, my dad, you know, he, uh, he came here, immigrated here from Mexico. Um, according to the legend, um, is that he either came through the river or came in someone's trunk. I'm not sure. My mom is, plays loose with those details because my mom says, I came over here legally, but not your dad. <laughs> They're U.S. citizens, so. <laughs> so my dad came here, and he worked like all people do. He was a janitor, and he, he somehow found a job as a janitor of a big church in Hawaiian Gardens, the El Dorado Park Community Church, huge church, one of the like first mega churches, which is no longer, which is actually going to be destroyed. That's kind of where I sensed the first inkling of my calling was when I was vacuuming, and I would vacuum behind the pulpit, and I would stand up behind this big wooden pulpit, and it was on the second story because you could fit like 3,500 people, and then people would actually drive up on their lawn, and there was this big window that would open, and the preacher could go out to the balcony and preach. So it was a huge church. So I first felt that first inkling of calling. I would stand behind there, but I didn't know the Bible because I was like six years old, so I would just pretend like I was saying things without actually saying anything. Big church. Dad was a janitor. Janitors don't make that much money. So he was telling me the story how my mom had gotten sick and their money was running low. And, and growing up, my parents would always say, the boots are tight, the boots are tight, which for those of you that don't know what that means, it just means that we just have enough to get by. So I remember my dad telling me that the church needed to do some renovations and they had to do some stuff and, you know, the church just needed repair much like ours. And so they asked people to pledge like churches normally do. And so my dad decided that he would pledge. And I remember, he's just an employee of this church, right? It's the Eldorado Park Community Church. But my dad's one of those guys that like if he's in, he's all in, you know, that's just the way he's always been. And so he pledges that he would give, I think it was like $50 a month. And it came down to the day when he was supposed to give it. And he was like, I can either give to or I can go buy this medicine, I can go do this, I can go do this other stuff. And my dad thought, no, it was $200, that's what it was, it was $200. And so he gave the $200, so it probably wasn't a pledge, it was just, this is all I can give. And my dad gave, believing that if he gave, that somehow, some way, God would take care of him, because payday wasn't for another week. The church, when they had done their, their, um, their fundraising call, it only made like, I don't know, it was like $20,000. And this is a church that had like four services. It was a huge church, people that were wealthy. And so that day, my dad went to the, went to the, to the, um, to the pharmacy. And back then, I think things were a little bit different. I'm not really sure where the pharmacy was. But he said, you know, I'm just going to write a check. And if the check bounces, well, then I'll just pay for it when it comes back. Right? Probably not the best way to do things, but that's what he, you know, he's a survivor. <laughs> Came over here in a trunk of a car. No, but... Um, so he gets there, and the lady was like, no, there's no charge. Like, your insurance covers this. And, and, and that was out of nowhere. 
So my dad goes back and tells the pastor, his name was Cecil Martin. I know this because when, we grad when I graduated from seminary, my dad forced us to drive three hours from Berrien Springs to go meet this pastor. <laughs> I can only imagine what those conversations were like. That's another story. <laughs> and so my dad tells the story to, to this pastor, Pastor Martin, and he just starts bawling, the pastor. And because and so, the pastor was like, why would you do that? Like, God understands. Like, you need to provide for your family. You shouldn't have done that. So the next Sunday, because they'd only raised $20,000, the pastor, he shares this story about the faith that my dad, who wasn't even a member of their church, okay, he was the janitor, right? He made their coffee every morning. That's what he did. That day after they had, he had said this, right, they had collected all of the money and the donations totaled $200,000 in one day. Now, I'm not saying that if you give, God's going to give you more money. But what I am saying is that when you put your trust, the trust of yourself, of your family, of everything in your life, when you entrust that over to God, even when it looks bleak, even when it just doesn't look like things are going to work out, I believe, and, I, and I've seen this, and my dad gave me like five other stories, that God will take care of you. Anybody can give out of their abundance. If you have $1,000 and you give $10, that's nothing. But when you give all that you have, believing with every part of your soul that God will provide and take care of you, I believe God does. I believe God does anyway. So what does this story have to do with how we wait for God? It's exactly that, that we must put our entire trust, our hopes, our dreams, every part of our lives, lift yourself up, lift your families up, lift your job, lift your church, lift, lift up your pastor in prayer and surrender to God. Because all we can be responsible for is will you lift up the name of Christ? Because I believe that if we do, God will draw all people to himself. We are just responsible to keep witnessing of who this great God is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we're always thankful for the challenges that you give us. Father, this morning I pray for those who are struggling with faith and that are sitting here this morning. I know that there is someone here, Lord, who is just struggling, who is asking that question, is it even worth surrendering my life to God? Will God really help? Father, I just pray that your spirit would fill that person now you would teach them and help them to believe even in the midst of the most dire circumstances. May you teach each one of us to be like the widow that gave all that she has. We want to give all that we have to you now. In your name we pray, amen.